Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ben Reinhardt. Good evening. Thank you for that very warm welcome. I'd like to begin tonight by quoting a piece from C.S. Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost. The preface begins, The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship, from a corkscrew to a cathedral, is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communist may think the same thing about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was made for opening cans, or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. Is that clear, the, the principle, right? The idea is you have to know what something is before you can say anything intelligent about it. Uh, it's an important principle. For instance, this room is the worst kitchen I've ever seen, right? There's no, there's no sink, there's no stove, there's no refrigerator. It's a completely ineffective kitchen. The fluorescent lighting really doesn't do it. But when you realize that this is a meeting hall, well, you know what? It's got a lot of seats. It's got a nice whiteboard. You can start to see that it's fulfilling the purpose for what it was made. You have to know why something was made before you can start talking about it, right? This is especially important before we start discussing the quest for the Holy Grail. Why? Because the quest for the Holy Grail, this right here, the book we're talking about tonight, is an incredibly weird story. It was odd when it was written in the first quarter of the 13th century, and today, given the passage of time, it's almost impossibly strange unless you start off with the right assumptions and unless you start off by asking the right questions. If you don't begin at the right starting point, you'll go off into the woods, get lost, and maybe never find your way back. So we need to know what it is before we start. Now, the definition is fairly easy. The quest for the Holy Grail is a part of the Vulgate cycle, written in Old French prose, probably around the year 1225. Uh, it's a spiritual romance set against the backdrop of the Arthurian world and informed heavily by Cistercian piety. It was written to use the conventions of chivalric romance and chivalric literature to incite in souls a love of heaven and a greater desi desire for God. Now, Unfortunately, left by itself, that definition does more to confuse than to clarify. Uh, we'll leave aside for the moment all the things I said about spirituality and cistercians and heaven. We'll talk about those very much in the next 100 minutes. I promise you, 50 tonight, 50 next week. Three terms I want to talk about in detail right now. They are Arthurian, Romance, 
and the Vulgate cycle. We need to get these terms clear before we launch into talking about the quest itself. So, first of all, first of all, Arthurian literature. Any discussion of Arthurian literature should begin by discussing what we call the Arthurian fact. This is what gives rise to all the Arthurian literature. Now, the Arthurian fact is this. The 5th century in Roman Britain was a pretty miserable time. And the reason why the 5th century is so miserable is because it's the time that Roman Britain ceased to be Roman. At the beginning of the century, Rome is sacked by Goths under Alaric. In response to this, the Roman consul Stilicho calls back the legions from the outlying provinces of the empire, including from Britain. And it's difficult to put into words how devastating this is for Roman Britain. The legions are everything there. Okay? The legions give you not just your military, but also your administration, your public works. They're the guys who keep up the roads. They're the guys who handle the mail. They represent a sizable portion of the male population of the island. And because it's a command economy, they represent the primary engine for economic growth. It's, the legions are everything. When the legions go, everything falls. Imagine Northern Virginia if D.C. sank into the ocean tomorrow, right? You, you lack an awful lot when that happens, right? Okay, so... <laughs> hooray, hooray, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. That aside, that aside, the prosperous inhabitants of Roman Britain find themselves exposed. And very quickly, they're invaded by a succession of their neighbors. You have Scots coming over from Ireland. You have Picts coming down from Scotland. You have English coming over from Germany. It's a very confusing time. It's a very harrowing time because they are surrounded on all sides until late in the 5th century... The Britons rally, they beat off the invaders for a little while, and they enjoy a period of relative prosperity and peace. This all is written down in the works of St. Gildas the Wise in his work on the ruin of Britain. Okay? Now that is the Arthurian fact. Rome leaves Britain, Britain is invaded by neighbors, Britain beats off the invaders. You'll notice there's one name that's significantly absent there. And that's the name of Arthur, right? <laughs> Arthur doesn't come up in this because Arthur isn't mentioned by any of the serious historians. St. Gildas doesn't mention him a couple centuries later. St. Bede doesn't mention him. You only get scattered, elusive references to King Arthur. You've got a poem written uh, in Brythonic around 600 called Egadathen, which says, this one warrior, he was pretty great, but uh, he wasn't Arthur. You've got scattered saints' lives. You've got a couple of lesser historians who mention him towards the end of the first millennium. And that's all you have. That's our historical Arthur. The best we can say about the real King Arthur is this. There was probably someone with a name something like Arthur, who did some of the things that Arthur is supposed to have done. That's about as far as we can go with the historical Arthur. The good news is that tonight we're not actually talking much about the historical Arthur. That's just the backdrop. We're talking about the literary King Arthur. And the literary Arthur's origins are as clear as the historical Arthur's origins are muddy. The literary Arthur, for one thing, he has a birth date. That birth date is 1136 when Geoffrey of Monmouth 
writes, apologies for the handwriting, he writes, the history of the kings of Britain. And all of a sudden, where before this, we have almost nothing about King Arthur, in 1136, we get pretty much everything. Okay? We know who Arthur's parents were, thanks to Geoffrey. They are Uther and Egrain, if you, if you know the legend. We know how he rose to power, how he defeated the Saxons, how he rode off to fight on the continent, how Mordred betrayed him, how Guinevere betrayed him, and how he and Mordred slew each other in the, that last fatal battle, right? All of a sudden, from nothing, we get the whole story. Now, it's not quite clear where Geoffrey got the whole story. Um, he claims he had an ancient book written in Welsh. Some of his contemporaries accuse him of having nothing other than his own fertile imagination. Um, but you know what? That doesn't really matter. What matters tonight is that Geoffrey writes the history of the kings of Britain, and after this, everything else is different. Thanks to Geoffrey, Arthur becomes an international literary celebrity. Uh, Geoffrey's work is copied all over Europe. It's translated. It's translated into Old French in 1155 by a man named Was. A generation or two later, 1190 to 1210, an English priest named Lawman translates it into Middle English. Everyone's reading about this. And everyone from, literally, from Iceland to Italy to Austria They know who King Arthur is, and more importantly, they know that Camelot is the center of civilization, of courtliness, of refinement, everything that you want to have on earth, you have at Camelot. Camelot is the golden age. So that's our first thing, the Arthurian background, all right? The second thing we need to talk about is romance. Now, this is a term we need to define carefully because... You know, modern people, they think of Jane Austen when they hear romance, heaven help you. You might think of Twilight. That is not romance if we're dealing with the Middle Ages. Romance in the Middle Ages is an outgrowth of the old epic form. If you've read the Iliad, uh, the Aeneid, you know what the epic is. You've got your great, larger-than-life hero, right? You've got the serious events of national or international consequence. You've got the fall of Troy in the Iliad. You've got the founding of Rome in the Aeneid. You've got the unified subject, the very serious tone. You have all these things, right? Romance takes this and basically lightens it up. Uh, You still have your hero, but instead of having the great international event, you've got quests. You have adventures. You have marvels. Um, You go to exotic places. Instead of having just one thing that you focus on, you get episodic adventures, all right? So it develops out of that old world and changes it. And most importantly for our purposes tonight, most importantly, romance, these quests and adventures are very, very often fueled by by love for a woman, by affection for a woman. Now, this seems normal to us today. But you need to stop for just two minutes here. Two minutes. I give myself two minutes. To see how monumental this is. If you look at any literature written in Europe before 1100, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anyone who does anything because he's in love with a woman. And if he does, it's probably not a good thing, right? Uh, You think of, I'll give one example, the Iliad. Achilles is very angry because his war bride, Briseis, is taken away. Okay? But he cares much, much more for his relationship with his war buddies, with his comrades. He cares about Odysseus, Patroclus, uh, Phoenix. These are the guys who he cares about impressing. He doesn't really care about the woman. In fact, the reason why he cares about his captive war bride 
is because she reflects the esteem that his comrades have for him, right? So it's the band of brothers that matter. Women, eh, don't matter so much. After 1200, so 100 years later, you'll be hard-pressed to find a work that doesn't have the protagonist acting because he has some love for a woman, all right? This is an earthquake, an absolute seismic shift in the history of European literature. C.S. Lewis says that compared with this, uh, compared with this revolution, the Renaissance, the entire Renaissance, mind you, is a mere ripple on the surface of the history of literature. All of a sudden, we discover that we like women, okay? All of a sudden, we discover that women are lovely things. Now, it's not just love for women. It's a specific kind of love for women. And this is a term worth writing down because I didn't think to mention it earlier. We're dealing with a concept generally called courtly love or phenomore, depending on what language you like. This develops at the beginning of the 11th century in the south of France. It owes its ascendancy to two immensely, immensely powerful women, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Marie de Champagne. Eleanor of Aquitaine, wife of Henry II, uh, mother of King Richard, most powerful woman in Europe in her day, Marie de Champagne, her daughter. These two women gather the southern French poets and the troubadours to their courts. They patronize them. They encourage them to write. And all of a sudden, you have this blossoming of literature on love. But it's not just love vaguely conceived. It's love that has rules, because we want to have fine love. We want to have pure love. We want to have courtly love. And here's how it works. Every young man of decency, gentleness, and good breeding has to have a lady love. Be you a knight or be you a poet, you've got to have a lady who inspires you. She should probably be of higher status than you. She can be the same status as you, but better that she's higher. You obey her without questioning, without hesitation. She says it, you do it, right? Um, And in fact, you are so desperately in love with your lady that you do everything you do to gain her affection and to win her favor, right? So you go off on quests, you write poems, you do whatever you can to make your lady smile on you. Okay, so that's pretty nice, uh, especially if you're a lady. Um, But there's another side to the whole courtly love thing. And that is, if you want your love to be really pure, if you want it to be really refined, it has to be secret. The love has to be secret. Now think about that for two seconds. If your love has to be secret, This has some startling implications for the sacrament of matrimony, right? Um, If no one can know about it, you can't be married. Courtly love leaves marriage open as an option, but it's a strongly discouraged option, all right? There it is. that's, That's courtly love. Now, courtly love gets grafted on very, very early to the Arthurian to the Arthurian legends. And it's almost impossible to talk about the one without talking about the other. A witness to this is the fact that if you know any examples of medieval lovers, the first one that will come to mind is Lancelot and Guinevere, right? If you read a little bit more widely, you might think of uh, Tristan and Isolde. All of them belonged to the Arthurian world, right? So these two ideas get wrapped up together. That's the second term. Romance with a special emphasis on courtly love. Now, last thing we need to get out of the way, last preliminary, holy cow, I'm going way over time. Okay, last preliminary to get out of the way is the Vulgate Cycle. The Vulgate Cycle is a three-part work. 
written between 1215 and 1235. We don't know by who. All right, by whom. Uh, it claims in the work itself that it was written by a man named Walter Mapp. Can't be Walter Mapp. Walter Mapp died in 1209. This thing doesn't get started until 1215 at the earliest. It ends in 1235. It's hard to write something, you know, 30 years after you kick the bucket. Um, moreover, not only is the author not Walter Mapp, if you look really closely at the three parts, it looks like they're written by different people. The vocabulary is different. The style is different. So we, we think that we have three different authors um, who are all working on this. And here's where it gets really weird. I apologize. The works, the three different parts, are closely linked enough, though, that it's pretty clear that there was some sort of cooperation. Someone oversaw the whole thing, said what he wanted it to look like, and then you had the three different authors cooperate in making the whole thing. We call the main, the main uh, fellow the architect, and then we talk about the three different authors. This sounds exceedingly weird, I know. It's actually not that strange. If, if you think of a modern television show, right, a season of TV, you have different authors for each of the different episodes. You've got your different writers. If you watch way too much TV and pay way too close attention, you might even be able to identify the work of the different authors. But there's a general idea. We want the season to go from point A to point B and end up at point C, and you all have to cooperate in that. That's basically the process we have here with the Vulgate cycle. Now, the three parts. We've got the prose Lancelot. Uh, we've got the death of Arthur. We'll leave the middle for just a second. The prose Lancelot is a massive compendium of Arthurian myths and legends. And I, I do mean massive. If you've got the prose Lancelot just by itself on your bookshelf, it'll take up about that much space. And that's if you've got tight printing. Okay? The prose Lancelot, three things you need to know about that. Prose Lancelot, first of all, features the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail weaves in and out in the background of the prose Lancelot. It'll show up here in a vision to somebody. It will cure somebody of a disease there. Uh, it'll distribute food here. It's not the most important thing in the prose Lancelot, but it's lurking in the background. Pay attention to that. Uh, second thing that you should know, the prose Lancelot is all about Lancelot's rise to be the best knight in the world. Inspired by his courtly love for Queen Guinevere, we see all the great deeds that Lancelot does and all the adventures that he goes through. All right? Second thing. Third thing, derivative of that, it's also about other women's love for Lancelot. And most important of these is the daughter of King Pellas. She wants Lancelot to be the father of her child. So the daughter of King Pellas pretends to be Guinevere, seduces Lancelot, and together they conceive a baby who, when he's born nine months later, is named Galahad. The prose Lancelot ends with Lancelot taking the 10-year-old boy Galahad from his grandfather's castle to a nunnery outside of Camelot. The reason for this is he wants to look in on the child as he's growing up, to check in on him. You know, he wants to be a not completely absent father, so he can look, on, look in on him and see his maturation into a man. That's how the prose Lancelot ends, the very end of the prose Lancelot. So we've got the love of Lancelot and Guinevere here. Here we have the discovery of that love, the discovery of the affair, and the subsequent destruction of Camelot. And right in the middle, we've got the quest for the Holy Grail. That's what we're talking about tonight and next time. So now we've got the background. Now we've got the basic literary inheritance. Now we're going to look at what the quest for the Holy Grail does with that inheritance. All clear? All right. We push on then. <clears throat> we'll start at the very, very beginning 
of the quest for the Holy Grail. Uh, if you don't have it yet, you should really get it. It's a fantastic book. You should read it. It's wonderful. And we'll talk about it more next time. But for now, I will read. On the eve of Pentecost, when the companions of the round table were all assembled at Camelot at the hour of noon, when the office was sung and the tables were being set up, a maiden of great beauty came riding into the hall. It was plain she had ridden hard, for her horse was still lathered in sweat. She alighted and went straight to greet the king, who wished God's blessing on her. Sire, she said, in God's name, tell me if Lancelot be here. Yes, indeed, there he stands, the king answered and pointed him out. All right. Now, a beautiful young maiden riding up all in a tizzy. Sounds pretty exciting to us. This is very standard boilerplate stuff for Arthurian romance. If you'd read the prose Lancelot, you know that this is... the. A lady's riding up, she needs help, we call this Tuesday in Camelot. It happens all the time, right? Um, in fact, things like this happen so frequently, we'll learn a little bit later, that Arthur has a rule. If it's a high feast day, he doesn't sit down to eat unless something strange and wonderful has happened, okay? So we begin right smack dab in that same world that the prose Lancelot established over a thousand pages, right? But if you read carefully, pretty soon you start to notice that strange things are afoot, that things unexpected are going on, that things aren't what they seem, and that something cataclysmic is coming. We see this when Lancelot goes off with the young maiden. She leads him to a certain nunnery not too far away from Camelot. He meets there a 15-year-old young man whose name happens to be Galahad, who is Galahad. He's been brought there to knight him. So, Galahad, so Lancelot knights him, gives him his spurs, rides back to Camelot, and confesses that he does not know who the young man is. Ooh, that's weird. That, that's, that's really weird, right? Because literally, just a page ago, if you've got the complete thing in front of you, just one page ago, he was 10 years old, Lancelot was bringing him back, Lancelot was going to check in on him, you know? It's only been five years, and by the way, Galahad looks exactly like Lancelot. How does he not know who he's dealing with, right? Um, either our author's incompetent or something strange is going on here. And I tell my students, pay attention to what's strange because it's usually a signal of something really, really important. And what it's probably a signal of here is that the world's not exactly as it seems. You can't trust what you got by on two pages ago, right? You should be able to know what your son, who your son is, especially if you've been visiting him for the past five years. Lancelot doesn't know that. Be on your guard. Pay attention, you might not recognize things either. That, that's the warning, okay? We push on ahead, and we get more sense of strange things about to come. Lancelot arrives back at Camelot. It's now the day of Pentecost, and sure enough, on cue, a marvel happens. A stone floats down the river. Embedded in the stone is a sword, and the sword says, this is for the best knight in the world. Arthur turns to Lancelot and says, well, clearly, this sword belongs to you. you. You're the best knight in the world. Of course he has been for the past thousand pages. And Lancelot, for no reason that he can state, says, this isn't for me. I'm not the best knight in the world. He has to step back and excuse himself. Whoa. All right? This is overturning for the second time in about as many pages everything that we thought we knew from a thousand pages of romance and adventure before. Now, the payoff for this comes a page or so later. Arthur gets his adventure, his marvel. They can sit down to eat. They sit down to eat. And this is now number one on your handout, the first significant passage. The first dish has just been served when all of a sudden, 
all the doors and the windows closed by themselves, yeah? But it's no darker in the room. Then suddenly, there appeared in the hall a man robed in white of venerable age and bearing, yet not a knight there knew the manner of his entry. He came on foot, leading by the hand a knight in red armor, who carried neither shield nor sword. And as soon as he stood within the, in the palace, he said, Peace be with you. Ah. All right, ah, you say ah. Why do you say ah? So, so Jesus through the, through the doors of the um, Easter uh, Absolutely, right? This is St. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 19. The apostles are gathered, the disciples are gathered in the upper room. The doors and windows are shut for fear of the Jews. Suddenly, bam, Jesus is in the middle. Peace be with you. All right? This is Galahad's arrival at Camelot. Galahad is to the round table as Jesus is to the apostles. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's their leader. He's their guide. And he has finally come. The world is changing. We get a clearer sense of this when Galahad comes down from the dinner. They go to the round table. Now, a brief word about the construction of the round table because it should be common knowledge, but somehow, you know, not everyone knows why the round table was made. Uh, the round table, 150 seats. Why is it round? It's round because, according to the legend, Arthur's knights couldn't agree who gets what seat, right? You all want the best seat. Well, so if you can't agree who gets the highest seat, make a round table where there's no highest seat and everyone's fine. So 149 completely equal seats. Each one has blazoned on it, engraved, this seat belongs to Arthur, to Galahad, or Arthur, to Gawain, to Percival, to Lancelot, to Bors. Except for one. There's one seat slightly higher than the rest, more magnificent than the rest. The seat of danger, the perilous seat, the siege perilous, depending on what your translation says. This is the seat reserved for he who will be the best knight in the world. No one can sit in it who is not that knight without suffering death or horrible injury. So, what does Galahad do? He comes downstairs. The, the inscription on that seat changes, and it says, this seat is Galahad's. Galahad sits down in the seat. Nothing happens. The round table, which has been incomplete all these years, been waiting for its fulfillment, is now finally complete. Now, pause and appreciate what this means. The round table is now complete. Earthly chivalry has now reached its high point, right? It's reached the apex. Arthur recognizes this. He turns to his nephew Gawain and says, Now, good nephew, we have Galahad among us, the good and perfect knight whom ourselves and the companions of the round table have waited so eagerly, eagerly to see. Earthly chivalry has reached its highest possible point. But there's a problem with consummations. The problem with the consummation, the problem with perfection, completion, means, well, that story's done now, right? We're going to have to embark on something different something of a different order, something higher. And in fact, we're going to learn that Galahad, by his arrival there, has made the round table worthy of receiving something much higher, much better, and that is a visitation from the Holy Grail. So, before we go in talking about the Grail as it appears in this story, we should stop and talk very briefly about what the Grail is and what it represents. Now, if I ask you to picture the Holy Grail, you might very likely, if you don't mind me, you might be picturing something like this, right? This lovely relic held in the chapel in the cathedral in Spain. You might be picturing uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? The simple carpenter's cup. Um, take the images of the, of the cup out. 
The word, the old French word grail, G-R-A-A-L, comes from Latin, a low Latin term, gradalis. Uh, gradalis is something that's brought out by degrees, something that's brought out for the different courses at a feast. It's a long, low platter type thing. Um, according to the legend, according to the legend as it's here, it's supposed to be not the chalice in which Christ celebrated the Last Supper, but the platter from which he ate the Paschal Lamb, in which then Joseph of Arimathea used to catch the blood as it came down from Christ's side. That's the origin of the term grail. That's what the grail is predominantly here. So think, think shallow platter more than you think chalice. Um, that disclaimer out of the way. This author is deliberately sloppy. Sometimes, most of the time, it's the platter. Sometimes it's the chalice, but it kind of goes back and forth. Mostly a platter. What it is, is easy enough to say. What it represents is terribly difficult. And if you want to start a fight among people who study this text, ask them, what is the Holy Grail? What's it mean in the quest? And you'll get 15 different answers, as many different answers as there are scholars. Uh, Palfilet called it the Romanesque manifestation of God. Etienne Gilson, the great Thomist in the early 20th century, said it's a dispenser of grace. Uh, Lot Berdeen called it the Holy Spirit. Um, let's see, Hamilton called it the Eucharist. Mataroso, who translates this edition, says it's contemplation of the divine. All these very rigorous di- uh, differences come without any real meaningful distinction. Whatever the grail is, it represents a union with God. Okay, That's what the grail is going to represent here. And if it can be both a platter and a chalice, two very different things, we can give it a little latitude on what precisely it represents. It's something union with the divine. All right. Now, now that we've got that out of the way, let's turn to handout number two. The court is now worthy to receive the grail, and the grail comes. And when they were all seated and the noise was hushed, there came a clap of thunder so loud and terrible they thought the palace must fall. Suddenly, the hall was lit by a sunbeam which shed a radiance through the palace seven times brighter than it had been before. In this moment, they were all illumined as it might be by the, by the grace of the Holy Ghost, and they began to look at one another, uncertain and perplexed, but not one of those present could utter a word, for all had been struck dumb without respective person. When they had sat a long while thus, unable to speak and gazing at one another like dumb animals, the Holy Grail appeared. Now, we've had our first advent, right? Our first advent was Galahad, coming like Christ to the, to the disciples. Here's our second big advent, and you probably picked up on the echoes, right? This is Pentecostal, right? It's the day of Pentecost. We get a loud noise. We get a bright light. All this mirrors Acts chapter 2. Yeah? Uh, The apostles hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The knights hear a loud noise. The apostles see fire, a light, tongues of fire that sit on them. The knights see a bright light. But then there's one meaningful difference. The apostles have tongues of fire to send, and then what? They speak, right? They're given the gift of glossolalia. They're given the charism of speaking in tongues. They can now speak in tongues that they've never heard before. The knights, to a man, are struck dumb. Ooh, that's disconcerting, right? Um, You've got this great manifestation of God's grace and God's presence where the apostles' tongues are loose so so that they can announce God's praise. The knights are struck dumb. This is another warning. We're not quite where we should be here in Camelot just yet. Now, this is driven home in a very clear way by what happens next. The grail goes around. 
serving to each knight the food that he likes best in the world. When all this is said and done, Sir Gawain, who in every Arthurian romance is the impetuous one, is the rash one, is the one who speaks before he thinks, stands up and he makes a terrible, terrible oath. Number three on your handout. I will set out on this quest without more delay and pursue it for a year and a day or more if need be, nor will I return to court, come what may, until I have looked openly upon the mystery we have but glimpsed this day, provided that I am capable and worthy of such grace. And if it prove otherwise, I will return. Now, it's critical, 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 to notice at this moment what Gawain says and what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say is, I'm going to go find the Holy Grail, right? There's a reason why he doesn't say this. For Godwin to say, I'm going to go find the Holy Grail would make approximately as much sense as me making an oath to say, I'm going to go find the Shroud of Turin. Everyone knows where the Holy Grail is. It's in the castle of King Pelas. We've seen it multiple times in the prose Lancelot. Everyone knows where the castle of King Pelas is. Galahad came from there. He sent a messenger to there. Everyone knows that. We're not looking for an artifact. We're not looking for a relic. What we're looking for, as Gawain says, is to look openly upon the mystery we have but glimpsed this day. We're not looking for a physical thing. We're looking into the mysteries of our salvation. That's the point of this quest. Now, maybe you think that I'm stretching Gawain's oath a little too thin. Maybe he just wants to look really closely at the Holy Grail. Uh, Further events in the first section of the work bear, bear this out. Arthur, when he hears Gawain's oath, is angry, mournful, distraught. He says, Gawain, you've dealt me a mortal blow. Uh, all the good things you brought to my court don't compare at all to what you've taken away from it now. Because Arthur knows that his knights are going to go, go out and many of them aren't going to return. They're not prepared for this kind of quest. They're going out into the world not of flesh, but of spirit, and they don't know it. Arthur knows that he's not going to get many of his men back. All right? This is driven home even more emphatically at the end of the first section when we get a warning from the hermit Naskins, number four on the handout. Uh, he says to all those who have vowed to seek the Holy Grail that no one can take a maid or a lady with him without falling into mortal sin nor shall anyone set out unless he be shriven or seek confession for no man may enter so high a service until he is cleansed of grievous sin and purged of every wickedness for this is no search for earthly things but a seeking out of the mysteries and hidden sweets of our Lord and the divine secrets which the Most High Master will disclose okay etc 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 this is not a quest for physical things it's a quest for the secrets of the Lord that is to say, it's not a quest that knights would typically go out onto. This is more like a quest that a monk, a Cistercian, would go out to, right? If you've got a monastic end, you're going to need monastic means. You can't take your lady along with you so she can see all the great things you do, because, no, 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 that sort of carnal love has no place, in, no, no place here, right? Um, not only that, you need to be in a state of grace, because without being in a state of grace, how can you expect to advance on this spiritual life? Now, the tragedy here, the real tragedy, is the knights don't seem to get it. All right? Uh, they all do agree to leave the ladies behind. They can do the simple thing. They can do the visible thing. We'll learn just a little bit later that most of the knights, indeed very few of the knights, bother going to confession. All right? So only a few bother going to confession. And that's going to de determine 
to a very large degree, the success or failure of the quest. So, that's the setup. We've got just enough time, just enough time here tonight to look at how this plays out actually in practice, all right? So, for the time we have remaining, we'll look at what the quest for these spiritual realities looks like. And we'll start with the first knight who comes up here in the text, and also the first knight in preeminence, Galahad, because he gives the clearest example of what a spiritual quest is going to look like. So, also, sorry, I should apologize. This is a fairly thick book to go through in two 50-minute sessions. I'm going to have to skip around a lot. I'm not going to have to hand, I'm not going to be able to handle everything. I'm going to select passages that I think are particularly illustrative of the main point. Um, then you should read it all and fill in the gaps. Then we can talk about it next week. Uh, but for now, for now, two particularly important adventures of Galahad. First off, Galahad's at an abbey of white monks. Uh, Cistercians. White monks, so-called, because where the Benedictines dyed their robes black, the Cistercians left their robes undyed, so they retained a natural gray color, so they are the white monks. Pay attention whenever you see a white monk pop up in this work. The Cistercians are always the guys with all the answers. (laughs) So, Galahad's at at this abbey, and the abbey has a problem. They have a haunted graveyard. Uh, Every so often, a voice will come out of one of the tombs. It's a terrible voice. Anyone who hears it lies shorn of their reason and shorn of their strength for a period of time. Galahad, being the good questing knight, says, oh, I'll, I'll take a look at it, right? So Galahad sort of trudges forward. He finds a giant tombstone, which no other man could possibly lift. He lifts it up. When he goes down into the tomb, into the ground, he encounters a demon shrouded in smoke and flame. And the demon yells at him, but Galahad's coming in his virtue, protected by angels. Galahad went to confession. Uh, So the demon flees. Then they find the body of a dead apostate buried in the tomb. The abbot says, oh, get him out of here. So they throw the apostate's body out of the graveyard. The demon won't return now. It's cleansed. Now... If you read Arthurian literature, this is a completely unremarkable quest. Sir Lancelot does something almost identical in the prose Lancelot. So this isn't unusual so far. It gets unusual, though, a little bit later. Galahad has done the good deed. He goes back to the abbot, and the abbot says, Ah, so you completed the challenge, did you? Well, let me tell you. This challenge has a higher significance than what you realize. He says, uh, first of all, You had to face three challenges, right? You had to face the giant stone, you had to face the demon with the voice, and you had to face the dead body of the the apostate knight. I'm going to tell you what those things signify, because there's a deeper meaning behind the flesh, behind the letter. There's a deeper meaning that you need to be aware of. So, the stone represents the hard-heartedness of the world before the before Christ came. Men's hearts were as hard as stone. There was no natural affection between family members, father for son, son for father. There was no natural affection to God. So Christ came to soften the hearts of men. Just like it says in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verse 26, I will take out from them the hearts of stone and give them again a heart of flesh. That's what you did when you removed the giant rock. Then... There was the dead body, and the dead body represents the world, dead in its sins and dead in its transgressions. When Christ came, you know, he 
he woke up the dead world. And then you've got the demon with the voice. And here the analogy is almost not an analogy at all. Just like Christ broke the devil's hold on the world, so Galahad breaks, you know, the demon's hold on the tomb. So, you've got that, first level. The monk goes on to tell him a second level where he's also signified Christ's passion. We don't have time to talk about that one, uh, but it's there. And then he says... Today the similitude is renewed, whereby the Father sent his Son to earth for the deliverance of his people, just as folly and error fled at his advent and truth stood revealed. So our Lord has chosen you from among all the other knights to ride abroad through many lands and to put an end to the hazards that afflict them and make their meaning and their causes plain. The money quote is here. This is why your coming must be compared to the coming of Jesus Christ in semblance only, not in sublimity. Galahad is going to be a type of Christ. In much the same way that an Old Testament king like David was a type of Christ. Galahad points to Christ, okay? That's the basic line. Here, he points to Christ's incarnation and to Christ's passion. Uh, We go ahead. Galahad thanks them. Uh, He rides out. He rides out on another adventure. We ride around for a while. And then, Galahad's riding through the forest. He's to be honest, in a pretty bad mood. He's in a bad mood because he missed Mass that morning, and he hates to miss Mass, pious Galahad. Uh, so, he's writing, and he sees an old abandoned chapel. Well, if he can't hear Mass, he can at least stop and pray at the chapel. So he does. He stops and prays for guidance, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Go to the castle of the maidens and end the evil custom that is practiced there. Now, despite not knowing what what the Castle of Maidens is or what the evil custom is, Galahad bravely rides forward. Uh, He comes to the Castle of Maidens, and immediately seven knights, seven brothers, ride out, and they challenge him. And then suddenly they all attack him as one man. Now, no no need to be concerned. You know, Galahad's Galahad. The author tells us explicitly Galahad could never be wearied when he was pursuing his calling. So Galahad routes the knights and drives them off. They go running off into the woods. He comes to the castle, and he finds a throng of maidens locked up in the castle, and an old priest who tells him the history. And this is it. Once there was a duke who had two daughters. Seven knights came to visit him, these seven brothers. They wanted to marry the eldest daughter. They all fell in love with the eldest daughter. She refused, the lord refused, so they did like any young man would, and they killed the father. Then they uh, pressed their suit again, but for some reason, this eldest daughter was no more likely to give any of them her hand, so they lock her up. When they lock her up, she makes a prophecy and says, what was lost through a woman will be regained through a maid, through a virgin. So the seven evil knights, they sit there scheming and scheming, and then they say, okay, what we'll do, anytime a maiden comes by these lands, we will capture her, Throw her in the dungeons, and that way no maiden can ever lead to the good knight coming and overthrowing us. So that's the plan. What they don't count on is the arrival of Galahad, who is both knight and virgin, right? So he is both knight and maid at the same time. So Galahad comes, he routes them, he drives them off. Once they're driven off, the older sister has died in prison, but the younger sister is still there. He establishes her as the lady of the castle, and then he, goes, he establishes her as lady of the castle, gets all the local lords to swear fealty to her, and rides off again to pursue the grail. And here our text leaves Sir Galahad and goes on to someone else. We learn a little bit later what the significance of all this has been. All right? A white monk 
tell Sir Gawain what Galahad's adventure meant, he says, well, you can probably fill in the gaps. Seven evil knights, seven deadly sins, right? Uh, the castle where all the maidens are held represents hell. The maidens themselves represent the just souls who were imprisoned, who died before the harrowing of hell, right? Because Satan had a claim to all of them, so they all go down to limbo. Galahad's breaking into the castle is Christ's harrowing of hell. And then, ah, so that, you got all that. But then what about the sisters? You've got the older sister who has died and the younger sister who's still alive. Any guesses? Even Mary. Old Testament, New Testament. Exactly, right? So you've got the old covenant, the old... You've got Eve, the woman. You've got Mary, the maid, right? Um, and finally, you've got sort of the old dispensation, right, with the law. And then you've got the new dispensation with grace and with the church, right? So Galahad comes, he establishes the church there behind him, or the younger sister behind him, and he leaves. So before we had incarnation and passion, now we've had harrowing of hell, resurrection, um, ascension, and the establishment of the church at Pentecost, right? Nicely done, nicely done, author. Okay, so that's how, that's the basic outline of how these adventures are going to work. The knights will go riding around doing nightly things, and then all of a sudden you'll have someone come along to explain what the real important meaning of their nightly deeds are. That's how the rest of the text is going to work. Now, why do we bother doing this? What's the author trying to get us to realize as we read here? I'm going to suggest that he's doing something analogous to what Christ does in the parables. He's doing something almost identical in this first part to what John Bunyan does in Pilgrim's Progress or what C.S. Lewis does in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The idea is you're going to take abstract things and make them effective by making them concrete, right? It's one thing to think about vice and virtue and sin. It's another thing to see vice, virtue, and sin as characters fighting and playing things out in front of you, right? Um, the other thing it does, it takes things that we think we know, things that we're comfor comfortable with, things that we take for granted, and make them new by making them strange, right? We think we know what Christ's coming into the world meant, but then you look at it from this new angle and you see, oh, wow, Christ coming into the world is every bit as dramatic as Galahad driving off that demon from the tomb, okay? So that's the other thing it's supposed to do. This all lines up really, really well with the Cistercian piety of the... Uh, the 12th and 13th century, the great Cistercian theologian William of Santerie says that all the effects of our redemption are celebrated in us whenever we recall and rekindle uh, the memory of them with prayerful affection. All right? That, that's a paraphrase. It's close enough. Prayerful affection. So you think about these things. You feel them. You mold them over in your mind. And you meditate on the mystery of Christ's redemption. And in some way that affection, that affective piety rekindles their effects in you. So that's the first thing that the author is trying to do. Now that I've made this apology for him, I'm going to say, that's nice, but it's really not enough. Again, I've said this twice before, I'll say it again. This is a long book, right? You can only read so many adventures where Galahad is Christ, Galahad is Christ, you know, before things start to get a little bit boring. These sorts of allegories are actually really easy to write. You just go to the New Testament. Every time you see Christ, you cross it out and write Galahad. And, you know, overcame, fought the devil, evil knight. And, you know, pretty soon, these allegories, which are supposed to kindle up emotion and affection in you, they lose their effect, right? Or at least they would. 
if our author weren't, I think, a genius. And this is where we've got to look back <laughs> in the last three minutes, then I'll let you go, last three minutes, on what he's actually done here. So we've had our two adventures of Sir Galahad, right? Let's review. We've got the first adventure, which is the incarnation and the passion, right? We've got our second adventure, which is the harrowing of hell, which is the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, right? So right there, in those two adventures, what he's done is he's given you what I'll call the easy part, right? He's given you Christ's life in the Paschal Mystery. And these are really easy to interpret for a very simple reason. When you've got Christ with you, things tend to be pretty easy. You follow Christ, you know, in the life of Christ, you know what to do. But what happens when you arrive structurally at the point where we are right now in the story, where Christ has established the church, where the Holy Spirit has descended upon the disciples, on, on the apostles, and now he's gone? What happens then? This is where we are well, it's where we are liturgically right now. In this story, it's where we are both historically and liturgically as well, right? We've just finished Pentecost. Well, now this is the age of the church, right? This is the age of the ordinary Christian, where through their striving, through virtue, but especially through grace and conversion and the sacraments, every every day, ordinary Christians, you and you and you and you and me, either rise or fall. We either respond to the call of grace or we resist it. Galahad's brought us up to this point. The rest of the quest for the Holy Grail is going to be watching how ordinary Christians respond to grace. All right? And we will save that for next week. Okay? Thank you very much. Uh, You've been great. We'll talk later. Could you come uh, tell us about the distribution of this. I mean, how widely was it read? Because obviously these were not printing press kind of items. Right. So you raise a very good point, right? One thing, fundamental thing you have to know about medieval literature is there's no such thing as a first printing, a second printing, right? Every single thing that you have written is copied down by a monk or by somebody else in a scriptorium letter by letter. Uh, I should know how many copies of this are made. It's fairly widely read, though. It's the prose Lancelot and the quest for the Holy Grail are widely read. They get taken up and adapted by Sir Thomas Mallory in his Mort d'Arthur and the Death of Arthur, which is the first then printed book in the English language. Or, yeah, I think the first printed book in the English language. So they do go widely um, from its writing in 1225. I wish I could tell you specifically how widely, but I can't. I'm sorry. Um, you said widely read. I'm assuming that we're talking about a literate class, which would have been the aristocracy, possibly the very rich merchants. Was it translated into a kind of mummer's play or some popular version for those who were not literate? There's no record, so far as I know, of any play being put on. Most of our early... We don't have a lot of plays being made around 1300. Uh, most of those plays don't survive. Uh, It certainly doesn't come down in any of the English mystery plays or anything like that. But as to the reading of it, right, most everyday people don't read. So you have communities of reading. And the way that things tend to be read, it's not you curled up by your bedside with your favorite, you know, Arthurian romance. It would usually be you after dinner with everyone around you, and you're reading aloud so everyone else can hear you. And this wouldn't just be necessarily you and your family. It could be you and an extended family. Or um, 
Yeah, no, you know, this is written for a lay audience. It's not intended for monastic reading. So this would go out to a lay audience, and that would be how you'd read it. It'd be in the manor house with maybe your chaplain reading it, or if you are well-educated enough, you reading it out loud to your family. Okay? Thank you, Doctor. Oh, thank you. Uh, the, uh, there is a footnote. There's one footnote on this page, right. and I'm wondering, there's semicolons here. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not uh, that is the book that you're touting. It is. Uh, and whether or not there are other, you, you listed several things up there, and you've listed several things here. What other books besides that come closest to uh, uh, being on the all-star list of uh, Murderer's Row, the, killer, the, the real killer readings that, that uh, you would recommend. All right. Can I ask him a question, actually, very quickly? Absolutely. All right. Are you asking for things written in the Middle Ages like this, or are you asking about things written about this in the modern period? No. I, that book I'd never heard of before, okay. and uh, I have heard of a lot of these. Okay. But what... What are the real best sources to read or to buy? All right. If you like medieval literature, here's what you do. All right. If you like medieval, especially religious literature, here's what you do. Uh, get this. Obviously, you're going to get the Divine Comedy, right? If you, haven't, if you don't have Dante, get Dante yesterday and start reading Dante. Uh, because I'm biased and I like Old English, I'll tell you Beowulf. It's fantastic. Read Beowulf closely. You get some really rich stuff in there. The Old English poem, The Dream of the Rude, is one of the richest, most beautiful things to come out of early English literature. Read The Dream of the Rude. Uh, it's short. You can read that in 15 minutes. Uh, finally, if you like the Arthurian stuff, if you like the Arthurian stuff, after you read this, I would go get Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, there's a translation by J.R.R. Tolkien, which is pretty good, but an abundance of, tra of translations out there. If I were to give my favorite things from the Middle Ages, that would be a pretty good list. I'll stop there. I could go on very long, but I'll stop there. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.